Dr. Ira Seidenstein. Yeah. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Julie. It's a thrill having you here. You're actually joining me all the way in Australia. Yeah, Brisbane. Brisbane. Yeah, that's um, I don't know Australia very well. Is that on the East Coast? It's on the East Coast. It's a little bit north, like of north of Sydney, but it's way south of um, what we call the top end. And um, it's kind of like the Florida, for lack of a better uh, understanding of the kind of climate. Um, okay. But it's very mountainous, um, whereas Florida is flat. And, but we're a subtropical region. Now, you don't have a thick Australian accent. Are you originally from Australia? No, I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where the pawn shop on the corner song is about. And um, I've lived most of my adult life um, in Australia now, but I have lived in a few other places. And, um, and I also lived a few places in the U.S. before I skedaddled in uh, August 1979. I decided to take a risk and bought a one-way ticket and went to Europe. And I've been gone more or less ever since. (laughs) Hmm. And why did you settle in Australia? Um, I I came here, I had um, contracts. So I came here as a touring artist a few times. And um, a, a, a number of people wanted me to stay here and thought I should set up my my method, my work here. Um, two of them were um, what we call, let's say, Anglo-Aussies, and two of them were indigenous um, older people. But they were people who lived in the city. And okay. uh, those four people uh, really wanted me to move here and, and felt that that would be the right thing. It's interesting because I interviewed um, a woman by the name of Julie McInnes, who uh, played um, the cello and was one of the vocal artists with Cirque du Soleil, and she's originally from Australia. And she was telling me during our interview that Australia at the time was giving out musical instruments to students. Um, I'm curious to know, now you're uh, primarily into the performing arts, theater, clown world. What yeah. is the state of culture in Australia today? Um, you know, my experience of it when I, I came here in the um, first time I was 81. But when I moved here, um, it was uh, 85. And it was very, very vibrant and growing. Um, the arts and the support for the arts and the variety was um, quite quite exceptional in and um, the variety in genres and um, and there was quite a bit of support but what also happens and this is a I think probably a, a international issue is there was more and more trainings for more and more artists and less and less percentage of work available and also there was consequently less and less percentage of people that were going to be awarded an, a, uh, an art grant so even though it was from my point of view it was very very rich and, and not in money terms but but vibrant and growing there you could see that there was a disaster coming and then um, mm. it's not a, I wouldn't call it a, a horrible disaster. I mean a disaster only in the sense that there was more people 
with certifications, with less and less experience and less chance for those people to find a way of, of getting their toe in the doors. So did that make for a more, I guess, exploratory community where people just, because they didn't have jobs or as many jobs, they just explored new things? Did they innovate more or did they stagnate? It, it was actually, yeah, it was more, um, more stagnating in this. And, and it was particular because, and I saw this evolving that, you know, the, the grant applications used to be looser. And then as their process um, refined and also as there were more people applying, the arts councils had to, you know, make more specificity about who could or should get a grant. And, and so people started orienting their work, a lot of people, not everyone, but certainly a lot of people started orienting their work to get a grant. And that to me was the antithesis of how we actually work as artists. And yeah, I'm not you're saying very that right artists aren't that. organized, but I, I, um, I can say the creative process is actually an unknown, um, even in the best of circumstances. And even if I use the example of the most commercial, like in the, in the US um, Broadway scene, they were very, very creative people creating the, the musicals and even the even the play productions and they would take a show uh, to smaller cities for uh, two months and try things out and they would make adjustments and they would change things from one day to the next to improve um, so so there was really this authentic creative process going on and um, and I think that it got interfered with through the bureaucracy. Um, I've seen a bit of that in Canada, uh, but mostly where the arts became almost an academic domain, where, you know, you're talking about the grants in Australia. It's the same thing in Canada. You can't really get a grant unless you have a BFA or an MFA or, you know, uh, some sort of graduate program or graduate degree. So artists who are naturally born artists uh, don't have a fighting chance to get financial support. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think also I, I thought about this recently and I, I wanted to, I don't know if we're going to touch on some of my projects that I created, let's say directed, but created. <clears throat> and I, I like to work uh, in a kind of collaborative way, even though I'm, uh, I really guide it and, and, and I'm a strong director, in fact, but I actually work collaboratively. But I have this um, horrible uh, what I would call a syndrome, which I now call the um, Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland syndrome, which is, hey, kids, come on, let's go out in the backyard and make a show. And, and I, have this, <laughs> I have this ability that if you, if you just give me any actor or four actors or 20 actors and a studio with nothing in it, I can make a show. Now, I'm not saying it'll be a great show, but it'll be good. It'll be interesting and it'll be creative. So I think that, again, I think that the, the authentic processes of the artists are interfered not only through bureaucracy, but also, as you're pointing out, through the academia and having, and they, they're caught trying, 
that their their work is to analyze work. They're, you know, that's in the academic world. That's their function and that's their beauty is that they analyze how does this writer work. But then when you codify it, we're in a in a big malaise because if I if I go against the playwriting, for example, but it can apply to novelists or, or anybody creating. But if you took um, let's say twenty successful um, playwrights, say ten women and ten men who have produced and everything, and you talk to them about their creative process, you would see there's extreme diversity in approaches, how they schedule themselves, how they work with their subconscious, how they work with their conscious. So when you when you get caught codifying um, or, or art, we're in a, a bit of difficulty. So then you're faced with the problem as a teacher or somebody setting a curriculum. How do you set it up in a way that can assist the um, the person who wants to develop their art or as an artist or to experience, you know, even if it's, let's say, a scientist who decides this year they want to experience painting. So how do they go about it or, or who guides them? So these are, these are big questions. And we, we think we, people thought, like in the universities and the arts uh, bureaucracies, thought that they came up with an answer. And we had to, we had to give in to that if you wanted to get your grant or if you wanted to get support. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's almost, uh, I mean, I think you've explained the reasons why we can understand why they tried something, right? I mean, like you said, it's, it's that they're, that's what they're, they're into. They're into analyzing and, and creating structure for society and, and, and naturally the arts are going to get caught up into that. Um, but I am curious because it changes, at least in Canada, from city to city. For example, I lived in Montreal for three years where it is absolutely normal for artists to create projects, like you said, to get 10 people together and put up a show in somebody's garage mm-hmm. or in the, in the middle of the street. It's very normal. And then I moved back to Ottawa, Ontario, the capital of Canada, where um, it is abnormal to do so. So I, I do wonder sometimes if it comes down to the people, to the people who make up a city, and um, does you know the the impact between the bureaucracy and the the city culture? Uh, sometimes the the city culture can outwin the bureaucracy, right? Yeah, and um, on the not on the other hand, but also in relation to that. Um, I was thinking about this recently is that, you know, the avant-garde theater had the, one of the places where it excelled was in um, Paris. Another place was in, in New York City, in the, in the Lower East Side. So in the middle of this, the most commercial place in the world, which was New York, you had this, maybe it's a reaction to that. But you had the living theater, I think even in the 40s, they began um, Judith Molina and I forgot his name, her partner, uh, Julian Beck. So they they started, I think, in the 40s. And they, even if they were uh, with us today, they would be seen as the most extreme um, 
experimental theater artists even today. And they, but they were really engaged with a lot of, lot of things about society and politics and also the, the nature of uh, artists and the nature of what is it to be human and what is it to have community, all, all those questions. They, were, they, were, they weren't just farting about. They were, they were deeply passionate about where is, where is the world going? Where is the society going? And um, what is it to be an artist? And, you know, we're the ones who have the voice you know, Julie. So if we want to make a show, well, we can, nothing can stop us, but we may not be able to survive doing that. Mm, but there's, yeah, that's there's, a and, very and, good point. There's two separate things. So nothing is stopping me from doing whatever I, I want to do. Now, whether or not I can find the means to do that or to survive while I'm doing that, that's another question. But those are actually two different questions. And we usually, we often mix them up. <clears throat> And the the show that that goes on in someone's garage for you know, and and it might have um, a dozen people who come and see it. That's every bit as valid as uh, a blockbuster show from Toronto is also a big theater city and musical theater city, and and a blockbuster that might play to a thousand people a night for two years. And there's nothing wrong with that, but there's also nothing wrong with making a show and only 12 people attend. You know, this is our, the, the art world is, is uh, very big and, and there's room for everyone. There's not necessarily support for everyone, but there's room for everyone. And we need, we need importantly though, is we need us. We need the artists to actually be true to their artistic inst instinct and their passions. We, a society needs that. And too often we give up to, um, for survival reasons, or, or we, we give up our integrity in our true spirit. And we adjust that in a, in a kind of a survival commercial way. And I'm not against that. I'm just saying that, that we lose something when when the artist um, gives up on their own on their own merit, yeah, it's uh, it's interesting because I also interviewed Jacqueline Vandegeer, who is a Dutch uh, performance artist in Montreal, and uh, she was saying that she always, you know, throughout her her long career in the arts, uh, in, in as a performance artist, is that she always, you know, sometimes would have to take contracts where you know, she would address the hierarchy of needs. In other words, she would sometimes do work that just paid the bills because she needed to pay her rent that month. But yep. you're right that sometimes, you know, when artists have to do that, there is something missing sometimes. Yeah. And I think that she's right on the money because you, you have to negotiate with yourself. What is the purpose of, of this project, whether it's to earn money and pay the rent, for the next two years, which is fine, or is it to see what do I want to create? What's coming out of me at the moment? What's what's emerging from me? Does, so if we can if we can uh, be more clear, if the artist or the individual, even if they're not an artist but they want to explore the arts, if they can um, be a little bit more. Uh, let's say Cartesian, <laughs> you know, if they can separate 
the chafe from the wheat a little bit, then then everything is working in a good way, I think. It, it's when they get mixed up and when we lose that real artistic integrity that, that the society loses. Yes, I agree. And I love that we actually started off with this kind of conversation because you've had such a prolific career in the arts. You've, uh, on your website, it says that you've worked at Cirque du Soleil. Yeah. You've also worked on 140 live productions and yeah. probably more, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, let's start here at Cirque, just because it is probably the most recognizable um, you know, um, production. It's one of the most recognizable in the world. Yeah. And uh, did you, did you, were you an actor there or were you a teacher? I was both. I, I was a performer. I came in, um, uh, the first contract I had was a, um, a development week that they do before they make a show. And um, I was called to be actually the lead character for Kuza. What became Kuza, which is a great show, but it hadn't been, it, it hadn't gone into rehearsal yet. <clears throat> and then in the process of the week, a lot of things change. So in the end, the 17 people that came, um, only one person actually ended up being in the touring show, in the show. <clears throat> and so things change. And then um, two years later, I was contacted again because they had been looking trying to find, they, they do really work hard to try to find the, the right role for the right person and the right person for the right role. And so they found something finally that they thought I could come into. And it was a show that all, already existed, which was a beautiful show, Corteo. So I came in as a, um, what's called a replacement contract. And I was to come in and perform, but also uh, given my background uh, teaching, they also were interested for me to to teach things, whatever it is I teach, um, to the troupe when I was in it. <clears throat> and they also wanted, the original uh, call was for me to help develop the two clown characters, okay? But when you get in, it's a whole different thing because things change. One thing about Cirque du Soleil, anybody who's in it, you can go, things change. So it, as much as they have to, hold it together for at least 10 years and they 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 want things to um, stay as they were formed in the creation process there's also it's a big company and it's human and there's there's a lot of things that that do change so i came in and i finished my replacement contract the end of the year it was up till um, the last performance of 2007 and then that was it and but and in the, after that, they, the um, managers of that show uh, recommended me to Cirque. When, like when Cirque came to Australia, I was always recommended to teach. Um, so I don't know if that I, – I don't know uh, what your, your question wants to focus on. I'm just explaining a little no, bit I was, what I did well, there. I was curious um, that, because I, I, I like there. to – yeah, I like to tell people about, you know, some of the major experiences people have had because they can, you know, relate to a, a big brand name, right? Yeah. Um, and also, I was curious because the people who have worked with Silk, especially the ones that worked for Silk very early on in their career, tend to credit Silk Soleil for giving them a, a kind of structure. And I was really curious to see if you felt the same way or if you absolutely hated 
working within um, kind of a, a big uh, big company structure? Um, the thing is, I really loved. Uh, I think I think Cirque is an incredible company, and if you understand what they actually transformed in the world of circus, then what they did historically is absolutely extraordinary. And and there's so many great independent companies that have um, come from them that um, we have to understand that, that it yielded, it gave birth to a, a major creative revolution in um, contemporary circus. You know, and, and I mean, really, there's great artists and great troops that have had their experience there and then they, they created their own thing. So, okay, so I think Cirque is a really great company. There's, there's issues which have a lot to do with when you're in a, a corporation. There were 5,000 employees when I was in it. There were um, over 1,200 or maybe even 1,500 um, I, th I think there were over 1,200 uh, performers at that time. So there were uh, nearly 20 shows in, in either in development or in on tour. And there were, um, I think, 1,500 people working in the building itself in, in Montreal. So these are everything from, uh, you know, they have their own post office to shoemakers and hat makers and and cooks and um, you know when I was there they were also making a shift and they had 25 managers and and so it it was 1500 people like that plus um, Cirque created a lot of independent work for people in in uh, Montreal and Quebecois uh, to, to have um, supporting industries um, you know, like making making things and making materials, and then of course it it it, it changed around that time. That was two thousand seven. So it was also in a process of change where they had this twenty five managers. So of course they were they were coming in to help it to tie its um, bottom line mentality, if it makes sense. Right. You know. Well, I mean, it's almost changing. like a. It's almost like an IBM at that point. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was it was like that, but it it was remarkable too that that it had a very very uh, unique, uh, personable approach to the thing, which is very Quebecois. It's very Canadian, but also very Quebecois. So I really enjoyed it from the point of being in a. Canadian company. It's also a North American and it's also an international company. But also, there's no question that it was a, a Quebecois, or this, for me, it was discovering what that is, a Quebecois mm -hmm. uh, approach to, to life. And, and right. so that, that the, the company was in, in, imbued with that. And I, I cherished that experience. And then, uh, you know, you're in a, in a, challenging situation just as an individual uh, performer I was with 63 there were 63 performers in Corteo that's a lot of people Julie <laughs> you know mm. and um, and that's a lot of personalities so you have to have a management team that can hold it together because 63 performers are not going to hold it together and that's and, wild yeah and you I mean, know that's you wild. Have, yeah Be 
I was, I was, I was, I was just wanted to, to stay on this, this number for a second here, 63 people. I think there's a lot of people that uh, go to a Soleil show and you see all the acrobats and all the dancers and you don't realize that in total <laughs> on that stage, there are actually, there's a rotation of just under a hundred people. So like you said, that's a lot of personalities. Yeah, there's, there's, it, there, at that time, I think that was about around the average, and that would include the sixty-three would include uh, about six musicians. Then you had, all uh, in the whole show, including the sixty-three performers, you had a total of about one hundred and forty-five people, including box office cooks, um, security, uh, admin, um, technicians. So many technicians, wonderful technicians stage manager, um, people working lights and sound and prop masters, prop makers. You had three physios, um, and I think that was pretty normal for any of the Cirque shows, very important, of course. And um, so it, it was, uh, I think, about 145 people in the ensemble. Wow. And so, six, yeah. yeah, so that's that's a big, big commercial you know, product, let's say. Now, your other other shows, your other 140 live productions, yeah. were they mostly small, medium projects? Uh, yeah, yeah. I would say, I, I would kind of say the, the majority, which might mean 60% were, and a lot of those were my own creations. They could be solo, they could be duo, they could be a small group. Uh, I made... I made my own works also for groups of um, 15 people. Like I wrote a play about um, August Strindberg, the great Swedish playwright. And when I was living in Sweden and I wanted to research him and I found him very interesting. And then I was inspired and I made this play and that was for 15 actors. And we took it to um, five uh, small cities up near the Arctic Circle. So from Lulio and Kiruna, which is above the Arctic Circle, and um, actually we made it in Kiruna, so we took it down below the Arctic Circle to Lulio, which was about a hundred, maybe a hundred miles beneath the Arctic Circle, and then three other uh, northern cities, uh, which is a, a fantastic uh, project and experience. So a lot of my shows were like that, my own creations, and then I was in plays. I've been in a couple of um, musicals not like on broadway but three three um main musicals i was in chicago in a small city and um that was a great experience and um so so it's quite a freelance variety of things the other other famous company that i was in well i was in a couple but i was in the australian opera okay. there i was an acrobat and that was in a in, Incredible show of uh, Romeo and Juliet, and it was directed by a very famous Australian called Sir Robert Helpman. He was in the um, the famous movie The Red Shoes, and okay. that's um, well worth seeing. I think it was made around 1948. That's it's a great great movie, artistic movie, and um, uh, so I worked with him directly, and then. I was in uh, what's called the Bell Shakespeare Company, which is kind of like Australia's national touring company, so to speak. 
and uh, I was also hired to help establish it. I wasn't a founder. The founder is John Bell and his wife, Anna Volska. But um, after they had it going for a bit over a year, I was hired to help establish it as an ensemble. And I also acted in it, and I co-directed Richard III. I did most of the um, stage direction. The, the vision. Is that, yeah. is that what led you to actually take on directing full-time? Is it uh, getting a taste of it you know, as you were also an actor? Yeah, what? Yeah, I was a performer, and then I would um, even when I was like at the mime school, and you know, you want to make something with friends, and they'd always say to me after we'd work a little bit, they say, "Why don't you direct?" So, so people had the feeling right away that I I could direct in a good way, not because I was a bossy boots, but because I would, you know, I would just work in a way and and also i worked with other people's creativity i wasn't a one-man band at all but i could drive it a bit and um, so for i think um almost 10 years i was working as a director without ever really calling myself a director it's just that i was asked to direct it and then very often i was mostly i was also performing in it and then um at some point i was at uh, university and a number of the professors um, saw what I could do, and they said, "You should, you should become a director. You should direct." Because I was uh, assisting them in productions, and I was um, usually called in as a movement coach, but I would always speak up about character or text or acting. I was just, uh, I was a bit ballsy, <laughs> but I was, hmm. I was polite. I said, "Can I?" Could I say something? And I would do that. So, and I would only do that because I was so used to creating collaboratively, where everybody's voice in the room is as valid as the director. It's just the director is just a function. Like if if you're playing the husband in a show and I'm playing the wife, well, nobody's in charge. We're we're, we're creating it. So I came to directing um, organically, actually. And it, and it, and then finally, I was a director without acting in something, and that was an interesting experience because it kind of makes you sick. Because I thought this is why directors die because you're you're watching the actors on stage, and and even if they're wonderful, you're just having a conniption because as a performer, you want to do something about whatever is changing or going wrong. So you have this uh, visceral. Um, thing like you have to get up on stage and you don't do that but you you know I'd be in the lighting and sound booth running the lights or sound and I was I was going through hell and then then I went whoa you got to learn to separate and then um, and then eventually I you know became very good at that but I, I did it because I understood it was a health issue but that's how directors get unwell um, oh, yeah and then I, then you know, then I, I worked uh, other times again as a just as an actor, which is great, or sometimes just as a, a choreographer, a movement consultant, something like that. And then I'd be hired again as a director, and um, so it was nice. It was it was a, a creative way. The other, I just want to, if you don't mind me spitting it out, the other large company I worked with was um, Slava Snow Show, 
Oh, of so course. That's, that's uh, the um, great Russian theater company run by uh, Slava Polonin and his wife. And uh, it's a, a great, great, great show. And I first saw it in 1999 in uh, Montreal, my first time to Montreal. And I didn't know anything about Slava or Snowshow, whatever. I just, there was a festival on, I think it was the Laugh Festival, Rear. And um, anyways, I just oh. saw this poster with a, a clown's photo. And I thought, oh, what's that? And I went to see it. And I, I really liked it a lot. And I found it kind of mysterious because I had never really quite seen something quite like that. And then I saw the show a few times in a few different countries. and. Eventually, I uh, met Slava and his wife and met them a couple of times. And then um, one time, um, this is a crazy story, but I, I, won't, I won't bore you unless you ask me to. But coincidentally, uh, they were in Paris and they were, they were about to open. And I was lost this one morning because I was supposed to have meetings and they got canceled. And my friend who lived near wasn't home and I didn't know what to do with myself. And I remembered that um, Slava's show was opening at a theater right near. So I dropped by and to see if they were there and I'd say hello and they were there. And to make a long story short, after we were talking about for 10 minutes with a cup of tea, he asked me um, if I'd like to be in Snowshow. And I actually first thought he was joking, but his wife was looking at me this weird way and I kept talking like I'm doing now. And she looked at me and she kind of nodded her head towards Slava and shrugged her shoulders. And I looked at him, I looked at her, I looked at him, I looked at her, I looked at him. I said, I said, did you mean actually to be in the show? And he said, da, da, yes. I said, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we discussed it right on the spot. We uh, made the, uh, let's say, the contractual agreement when it was what period he wanted me for and what I was to be paid and, you know, whatever arrangements there were, transportation and accommodation, stuff like that. And then that was it. It was unbelievable, Julie. And, um, and, and I just, I was, I cherished it deeply. Like I, I cherished being in the Bell Shakespeare company and the opportunity. I cherished being in Cirque du Soleil, especially being in, in Corteo, which I love show I love. And uh, and to be in snow show, it was um, like a dream come true in a way. But uh, I don't. I'll come back to the the numbers. Like you asked me about being in Cirque and being independent or being structured. It's not that I mind the structure. It's that I don't fit in. Mm. So I I could be in the best situation, best companies, and I have been in a few, and. As much as I love it, and in some way I fit like a glove, there's a part of me that's like uh, a square peg in a round hole. So I yeah, actually, it's not for everyone. No, it, you know no. I I know a lot of um, I know uh, I've made a lot of contacts in the arts throughout the years, and I've met a lot of people who have been with big companies their entire life. You know, some of them are in the film industry; they're you know working on you know high level productions, and they're happy there. They belong there. They like their roles and it's good for them. And I've also met some that are like in that world, but don't want to be, <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it's just that they can't find perhaps any equivalent 
paying work outside of that. And then there are people like you who said, you know what, thank you very much. I love this experience, but I'm done. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, it's interesting, though, when, when you started your story about meeting Slava, or, or rather being invited to be in, in his show, it made me think immediately of someone else that I met in the clown world. And I don't know if you know her. Do you know Gina Bastoni? Oh, I know of her, certainly. She, she also yeah. went to Dell'Arte, but at a different time. But I know that yeah. she's wonderful. I've heard, I've, you know, I, I know, I don't know her, but I've just heard great things about her well Gina it's interesting because Gina is a is a the most eccentric person I've ever met in my life but she has a wealth of stories from being on the road with Silk for I don't know how many years I don't know if she was with them for 20 years but like you know she performed for like Michael Jackson she performed for um all these famous celebrities and she just has story after story after story and I guess that's what happens when you're a touring artist, right? I mean, yeah. you just collect stories. And, and also in circus is a peculiar, a particular, because my third performance was a Saturday when I was actually brought into the show, took, took time, took rehearsals. And you know, anyways, that was a whole process. But my third performance was a Saturday. So you have two shows, you have a matinee and you have an evening performance. And after the matinee, and I'm still new, so I was, you know, maybe I was I was doing something, but everybody had already skedaddled. That was actually my first matinee. So everybody had scooted to the um to eat. And I wasn't sure if I had to take off my makeup or if I had to do this or what do I do in a matinee. So I didn't know. And I was just to leave the uh artist tent and I thought I'll go over to eat and um, standing outside was this uh, woman who with three children and I said uh, I said are you okay because you, you can't have people unescorted on the circus property because it's actually dangerous you know there's things right. to trip over and stuff like that so it's actually a legal insurance thing so I said are you okay and I said are you with somebody and she said well she she went somewhere and I said, well, well come in here because I got her and the kids in. Now, this lady happened to be someone you might have heard of, which is Kate Blanchett. So, oh, my goodness. So, so I'm, I'm just talking to her to, to stall for time because I have to uh, – I shouldn't leave them there and I have to find somebody else. So I was just – trying to understand what her situation was and she was just going to she was going to be given a tour with her kids but that person for some reason maybe they went to the toilet or maybe they went to get her and the kids some juice or something and so I just was chatting to her for a couple minutes till the the escort finally came back <laughs> and you know so it's, it's it's absurd you know so I'm sure Gina that's that's me on day three so if Gina was in, um, is that her name, Gina, the clown? Yeah, Gina, Gina Bastoni. Yeah, yeah for sure. Gina Bastoni yeah, I mean, in for years, and she would have 8,000 of these stories. Exactly. Um, Ira, I don't want to um, 
I don't want to miss out on speaking about your teaching because we have about 20 minutes left and okay. I think we should devote it to that. Uh, okay. You are a, an arts um, a theater teacher, acting teacher. Um, you have your own methods. I know that you have the uh, Seidenstein method. Uh, you mentioned to me earlier you have the quantum method. Tell me a little bit about the methods you've developed and why. Well, the main thing is uh, the the actual method is called quantum theater slapstick to Shakespeare. And um, somebody suggested, um, let's say nine years ago, I should start to call it by my name. But in the end, I I prefer quantum theater slapstick to Shakespeare. So it, it, it was my uh, way of having been involved in the performing arts already for um, nearly 30 years by that time and, and seeing lots of different things. And I had an idea that there was a, a different approach that I was interested in that I had been developing all along that was not antagonistic towards the different methods because a lot of times it doesn't matter whether it's acting or directing or clowning or whatever it is in in the theater that people are, can be quite antagonistic and it's like um you know your your sport team versus someone else's sport team it's it's not that it's any better it's that it's yours so i i wanted to see what is underlying all of these different methods for acting theater and clown what is it that, what are the universal principles and i'm not the only one who thought that but i was i took a kind of a scientific approach in that i only wanted the underlying principles i didn't want the aesthetics i didn't want my preferred way of what i like to see on stage or what i like to perform or what i like to direct i wanted i was looking at some other kind of direct conduit of an individual human's creativity manifest towards acting or theater or performance or clown. And so that's how I started to um, develop my method. Does that make sense? And where do you teach it? Yeah, where do you oh, teach it? Well, I've taught it in a lot of places and a lot of situations. But for, from let's say, from 2008 to 2019, I did, oh, my God. I must have done at least 35 workshops in Paris. So, and and whenever I would teach in Paris, I would go to some other cities as well. Like I might go to London, I might go to Glasgow, I might go to um, Dublin or Belfast and um, Aberystwyth in Wales. I might go to uh, Stockholm, Berlin, Vienna, different, different places. But Paris, because of coincidence of meeting a person who was interested in my work and was able to help um, organize studios for me. And he's now my very close friend and associate, Casper Shelbred of, of Paris. He, um, he helped me to organize these workshops in Paris. And from there, I, I did many other workshops elsewhere. So, so that's where I was teaching it mostly um, for those years. And um, I taught it at uh, at different places, um, a lot of different places, and and I've taught it also under very differing uh, circumstances. That's also what I taught when I was um, in Corteo, and I would teach um, 
you know, that the performers come up and they could see what I could do or how I did things. And they'd say, could you teach me blah, blah, blah. And another person might come up and they'd say, they just do it individually, spontaneously. Iro, do you, you know, da, 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 da. I said, yeah. Could you teach me some of that? I said, okay. So, so my approach is this quantum method. And, and here's where the, the um, I'm not a scientist at all, right? And I'm not, I'm not uh, really educated in science. It's not my forte. But I, I really love the lay books, the, the principles that I was reading about in quantum physics and quantum mechanics. But I just extracted a few things. For instance, everything is energy potential. Okay? So that's, that's the quanta is this potential of energy. The other thing is, this is a key one, Julie. The observer affects the observed. So what I had seen, for example, in, in clown, there's a lot of problems with teaching clown, and it's not easy to teach clown or acting or Shakespeare. The challenges are there, but but if a if if you have ten clown teachers who have very different views on clowning, and they tell the people in their workshop, this is what a clown is, and this is what a clown isn't. So if the performer, the actor, or the person to, trying to discover clowning does something that doesn't fit in with the the observer's viewpoint, then what the performer is coming up with is negated very often. And it's negated not necessarily outwardly. It's, it's negated in a subtle way. So what I'm saying is that in, in teaching, the mind of the teacher really can affect the learner. And, and, and you can use that in a positive way. But unfortunately, it also, if, if you don't control that, then peep, the, the learner is coming up with things that might be a discovery that you don't know. And you have to be sensitive to that. Or you can be clear with them, this is what I'm doing, but this is what you're doing. And then we can, we can negotiate that. So I think that my teaching approach, that's my teaching approach, is that I enter a room with the individuals and I have a structure and things and exercises, and the exercises have, the creative exercises have very simple structures, very simple, only a couple of steps. But what comes up, oh, that's, that's the magic that, that I'm interested in. And that's the magic of that person's encounter with that exercise and with those instructions. So, so the thing they're learning is the thing they're doing. They're, it's their encounter with the material. It's not the material itself. It's not an outward goal. It's not an end goal. It's the actual experience of being there, present. And and from that, then that's really artistic, that your subconscious is working, your conscious is interplaying with it. And that's what my teaching's about. It's really interesting that you point out, you know, the the differences in the kinds of teachings that are happening in the clown world, because this is very personal to me. I had um, a really horrible experience in the clowning uh, community where at a specific workshop, um, you know, the, the, the teacher reduced some students to tears, you know, some of the stuff that you were doing was just not right according to their perception and 
And, you know, um, it was uh, almost a form of belittling the students. Uh, and it was, uh, it was just um, very distasteful. And it wasn't something that would ever nourish or encourage creativity. And what I like about what you're doing is that you're taking it, you're breaking it down to the, its most basic element. Yeah, you know? it's, it's, the, it's the DNA. It's the cellular level. It's, it's the cosmic level. It's the quantum level that is the space where that person can deal with their issues as well deal with their encounter you know right. it's, it's like going going for a hike in the mountains in the middle of the winter then you're encountering the elements you're not just going for a la-di-da walk in the park and it's the encounter that when you come back you feel invigorated if you survived and didn't get eaten by a bear in canada but um mm -hmm. but also you have this opposite thing that's happened julie which is uh, that some Clown teachers will now try to be so nice and so supportive and, and so huggy. And it's just like, well, it's, it's not one or the other. It's something else. And, and we can also see that what I'm, what I'm actually concerned with is the actual mind space that the teacher, no matter whether they're good or mean or strong or supportive or whatever but it's their aesthetic about clowning which is a bit of the problem mm -hmm. because they're they're even they may not realize it so i'm not i'm not blaming them per se i'm just saying this is the state of the art that their their projection about what a clown is and isn't is affecting the discovery in the room and it's like a virus because once that goes out to that performer that's up there trying that exercise now and depending on what feedback's given or not given or what's ignored even if something beautiful has happened and, and the teacher hasn't illuminated that you know calling it out and and recognizing it then it, it goes like a virus amongst the other um, actors and you know the actors are in a vulnerable space. It, it would be the same for me or you. If we were up there and and somebody is is telling us to do this acting exercise, we're up there doing it. We're the ones who are the vulnerable. We're we're on the empowered space, and we're on the vulnerable space, which is on the stage, on the on the studio floor, and the um, the mind space of the teacher is much more important than is than is acknowledged and that's what again i come back to science and quantum and and the observer affects the observed so um <clears throat> you know yeah. and of course we're touching on a very uh topical topic about the teaching of clown but it happens also in in acting and it happens in theater and it happens in art you know um uh an art teacher can work all kinds of different ways as well. Um, Absolutely. You, you just mentioned something really beautiful, which I also wanted to highlight, which is that actors or people who are training in acting are both in a vulnerable and an empowered space. And that's so true because I remember studying 
uh, physical theater in Montreal for, um, I think, six months. And it was the best feeling I'd ever felt in the world, being, as we say in French, sur les planches. In other words, training, um, you know, uh, with with colleagues, with other students, with a, an amazing teacher at the time. Um, and then what was funny is leaving class at night and walking home and then realizing that I was indeed in a very privileged space where you can be whatever you want to be in whatever mindset you want to be under the direction of a great teacher. Yes. So it is quite special, isn't it? Yes. And, and it's a very special for us as humans. It's a human space. And, and the, the teacher is not a teacher if they don't have the pupils or the actors, but an actor can be an actor without a teacher and without a director. You know, and, and so I like to reverse the, the psychology of the situation. And, and I'm a very strong teacher. I'm quite disciplined. But um, I can sit there unbelievably patient. And also, I, I can tell you honestly that when I'm sitting, I never know what's going to happen. And I'm not sitting there to, to judge, is the person doing the exercise or my exercise the way I want it? What I'm doing is I sit there and I do not know what is going to happen. And my feedback is related to that. If the person's maybe misunderstanding something or they're missing a step, I'll just point that out. And I also, if a person's really, um, I like to say, did you suffer for your art? I like the actors to suffer for their art because that's them exploring and discovering. But I joke about it when a person has a really hard time. And I say, well, that's good. And I, I said, would you like to do it again? I would say, would you like to do it again? And they might say yes, or they might say no, or they might say never. You know, so I, I have this, uh, what I hope is an authentic dialogue, even though it is in a situation where I'm the one facilitating, you know. Um, but I, I have to say when I, give the exercise or when the next person goes up to do the same exercise, I sit there and I, I'm Zen mind, beginner's mind. I do not know. I have no idea what's going to happen. And I just see what happens. And then sometimes an actor will be doing an exercise and they're, they're going quite down a, a rabbit hole. And I, I might say, okay, bring it to an end in 10 seconds or bring it to an end, bring it to a closing. I might say, okay, just hold it there. And then I, I'll say why I stopped it. And I I'll, I'll always insist that you can have a, you can do it again. Or uh, sometimes I'll be specific. I'll say, let two more people go and you go up again. So I think it's really important that the, the person hasn't been bad. They haven't been, um, they haven't, made something wrong they're up there trying to to discover something so the fact that they're up there is a that's that's what really counts from my perspective right. if there's something that i think is a miss it's up to me to also explain that or say that but it's really important that the person can try and try and try and try again and um that bear that in mind i have a saying i have a lot of sayings but i say you're already good the question is, how do you get gooder? <laughs> That's cute. And this, is, this um, is also, let's say, my philosophy with, with teaching. It's not 
to judge a person are they are they going to be a good actor or are they going to be a good clown it's i'm not that's not what i'm doing right we have a couple of minutes left, so I, I just want to ask you one last question before we sign off here. Um, I know that you write books, and I know that you're writing your third book, uh, and we'll put a link to all that information. Um, unfortunately, we're not going to have time to talk about it, but okay. I wanted to know what book that you recommend to early career artists. Uh, when you say artists, you mean performing artists, or sure? Let's let's go with that. Let's say early career performing artists. Um, they're looking for a new book to read that will either inspire them or help them in their career. What would you recommend? Okay, I'll do the obvious, and I would like to recommend my my first book, which is called Clown Secret, and there's hundreds of stories in there. So it's it's a book that it has it has some methodology in it. it has one chapter on methodology, but most of the book is actually uh, true anecdotes with a purpose, but there's a lot of them. And, um, and what happens is you get to go into uh, the experience of somebody who's been through the journey and, and talking about those different passages along the way. And, it, and it's a book that uh, I do know people that read it in one go in a week. And, and I know people that started in the middle. And I know people that pick and choose. I know people that loved it. I know people that, that hated it because it wasn't whatever they wanted to be, not necessarily performers. But I, the, clown, the book Clown Secret, I think, has a lot to offer. And um, and there's nothing wrong with getting that book and skipping to to the sections that you want to read, but I think that yeah, I like, I like those kinds of books. <laughs> it, it's about life and art. I think that's what I'm actually trying to say. Right. And and it's and it's really written in a in a living artistic way rather than in a formal way. Beautiful. Well, listen, um, it's been so great to have you on the show. I know, like I said, uh, that you are writing your third book. I'd love to have, have you back on when you're done writing it. Um, and uh, it's been great to just uh, get your, your thoughts and your perspective and to uh, share more information about you with the world. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Julie. I'm sorry if I spoke too much. Not at all. Not at all. It's all been fantastic. Thank you, Ira. <laughs> Thank you so much. Hi to everyone who's out there. Hello.